it, we would confuse that to, to think that it meant that they fell in love or something. So we, they, you know why they said deceived. But the point here is that stealing evokes a response of more stealing. And this gives us insight right now into human conflict. Do you have conflict with somebody? Deep-rooted, long-term conflict. I am willing to bet in 99% of those circumstances, you or that other person feels stolen from. It's the new guy at work, doesn't pay you the respect that he should, and you already don't like him. Why? Because he's stolen something that's yours. He hasn't given you something that he owes you. You think about your conflicts, it specifically says in James, James says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? You are envious and cannot obtain, you fight and quarrel. You feel like something should be yours and it's been taken from you. Sits at the root of human conflict right here. And rarely do we call that for what it is. We feel slighted, you might say, in some way. What? When we say slighted, we mean not given our proper or due respect, stolen from. And so all of this comes together and works out to a situation where these guys are about ready to exit, they have to do it in secret, and they steal the heart of Laban, and they steal his gods, and they are on their way. And the conflict begins. We read that Laban goes to shear his sheep for three days, and on the third day, he hears about it, or he figures it out that they have fled, and he chases him. And if you're reading your Bibles, let me just prepare you. Whenever you read about the third day, there will always be a turning point. Jesus rose from the dead on the second? No, third day, right? It's always this preliminary sort of turning point of judgment. And so it is here. On the third day, he finds out about it. And then it says after seven days, he finally catches up with him. How many days is that in all? Ten days. You will regularly in the Bible read about a period of conflict and trial that lasts ten days. About it in Daniel, Revelation, you name it. Ten days is a long time. We know that Jacob, in the midst of this fleeing literally traveled something close to 30 miles a day with women, children, flocks, servants, you name it. He must have been exhausted. You ever been in a conflict where you are literally being exhausted by, by all that is expected of you in the midst of it? You can imagine by the end of these 10 days, Jacob is delirious, hardly capable of, of engaging with another man and hardly capable of, of reconciling and making sense of things. And you can imagine it was a testing and trying period. And Laban shows up with this great army and we get the first taste of gospel. God shows up in the night, speaks to Jacob's enemy, Laban, and says to Laban, don't say one word to my servant good or bad. Don't say something good to entice him to come home. Don't say something bad to discourage him from leaving. Don't do either. He's off limits. And despite this, this word from God to not go and pursue Jacob any further, Laban still shows up to Jacob and he has some words for him. He has some very interesting words for him. 
And I want you to put yourself in Laban's shoes when you really think about this. Laban comes to, to Jacob and says, hold on, pal. You talk off with my kids, my family, a big portion of my flock, and you didn't even say goodbye. That I could kiss my, my family goodbye, that I could throw a party for them. And on top of that, you stole my idols. Now, we know he didn't really steal his idols, don't we? We know the story. His wife did it. But you know what? If we were to put Jacob on the stand in a court of law today, let's not pretend like there wouldn't have been plenty of evidence to convict this guy. And don't pretend like you haven't presumed guilt about other people for far less evidence than Laban had against Jacob. How did Laban meet Jacob in the first place? Well, he was fleeing from his own household after he stole his brother's birthright and his blessing. And then when he's in your house, somehow you make a deal with him that he gets to have all the spotted sheep, and somehow all your sheep turn spotted. Who knows how that weird witch of a man managed to do that. But it's something tricky. He's always tricking people. And now, a guy jets from your house who's been living with you for 20 years, and your household idols are gone the very same day that he leaves. Let's not pretend like if you sat on that jury, you wouldn't be like... This guy, this guy is guilty. I know a liar when I see one. And then add to that, add to that that you just don't like Jacob. You just don't like the guy. When we don't like people, we welcome bad information about them. We welcome it. We don't even try to scrutinize it. When someone tells you something bad about someone you already don't like, you're like, yeah, of course, I always knew that guy was an idiot. I always knew he was self-serving. Got any more stories like that? If you don't think you do this, I have a, a perfect illustration for you in a fine election year like this. Whether it be George Bush or Joe Biden, are you the sort of person when you hear about it on TV about the next stupid thing they said, you're like, he's so stupid. Finally, the other side's going to see. And it would generally be a weekly thing for either one of those guys. Do you find yourself loving that? Do you find yourself looking at the computer seeing that the unemployment numbers are down? Disregarding the fact that that means hundreds of thousands of people don't have a job and being like, yes, that guy's not going to get elected now because the employment numbers are down. See, because we love, we love it when our enemies are exactly the person that we have made them out to be in our minds, don't we? We welcome that bad news about them. We're hungry for more. And Laban, he is hungry for some reason to hate Jacob more than he already does to justify his indignation toward him. And you know, it's, it's funny because in the midst of this, it, it, it blinds him to all of the wicked things that he has been doing to Jacob for years. Doesn't this seem a little bit unequitable? Hi, I'm the guy who uh, asked you to work for me for seven years and then switched up my other daughter on the daughter you were working for. Then you worked seven more years, and after that, 14 years, you got both of my daughters. After that, I had you work six more years, and then I changed your wages ten times. But I am really mad at you for leaving without saying goodbye. Don't we do that sort of thing in conflicts, where some, how we're fighting for some sort of point to be vindicated by without any regard for the fact that it it, it pales in comparison to the wrong that we have done to that other person. We do this all the time. And unfortunately, I, 
I have a story. This fortunately did happen when I was in high school. Fortunately, it happened when I was a senior, so I can't distance myself from it quite as much as one should be able to. But there was a gal who had a birthday party, had this big Costco-sized cake. And I remember I, being the immature young man that I was, I took some animal cookies and kind of set them up all over the cake and just kind of tweaked with it a little bit. She acted like she didn't care, so I was like, well... Made a whole scene with fruit and things like that on the top of her massive birth, birthday cake. Eventually, I dumped some chips on it and uh, pretty well did it in for the cake that evening. And um, I sat down to watch whatever show we were watching, and she, she took a piece of this cake and she smashed it in my face. That was a fight and move right there. So I picked up the cake, chased her around the room, and just absolutely covered her in her own birthday cake. It's, it's a true story. Um, and a depressing one to have to acknowledge is true. And I remember right after it happened, I said something like, hey, you started this, you know. I'm talking to the girl covered in her own birthday cake, laboring to be vindicated on the point that she started it. There's something rather confused about that. And you ask yourself in the midst of your conflicts with your spouse, are you going to labor to be vindicated on that one point that is frankly wholly irrelevant? in light of how much you have wronged that other person. That's what we have happening here with Laban and Jacob. He wants to win on this point that you left on bad terms, and he might have a point. It's not a particularly nice thing to do. It also isn't particularly relevant in light of the abuses that Laban has been involved in for years and years and years. But this is what we do. This is what we do. Right at the center of this story we have perhaps one of the most remarkable points and insights into the nature of our own sin in the midst of conflict. Laban is most of all mad about the fact that his household deities, which are to protect his home, have been stolen. That is what he's the most angry about. And it's, it's kind of a joke. He goes around looking for him, can't find him anywhere, and they're hidden in the saddle of his bride, who is in the midst of her period. And underneath the surface of this story, there is a bigger story. Look what has happened to Laban's gods. They have, in any culture, it's not a particularly bright place to be, essentially in a woman's menstrual rag. His gods have been reduced to nothing. You ever step back in the story to ask yourself, why he's so concerned about losing them? How well have these gods done in vindicating him in the past? It would seem to be a big disappointment. Hey, we're the gods who are supposed to give you some insight before something bad happens. We got stolen. Sorry, we forgot to mention that one. We're the gods who are supposed to protect your household and your blessing. (laughs) Sorry, Jacob came and he pretty much took everything you own, including your daughters and your grandchildren. Why does this man want his household gods so bad? You know, in the midst of our conflicts, we will find ourselves fighting for things that if we really stood back to ask for just a minute, we would find that those things have been nothing but a disappointment to us. Nothing but a disappointment. We're fighting for our pride. Where has your pride gotten you? Salvation? Joy? Wholeness? We'll fight for it. Don't let those go. Those are important to us. 
And yet all they've caused you is hurt. All they've done is confuse and convolute your life. This is what we do. This is how dark, convoluted, and confusing our conflicts are often. Well, not only does he not find these idols which have been shamed against the God who speaks, which is Jacob's God, who spoke to Laban and said, don't go and, go and attack my servant. Not only does he not find him, but at the end of it, Jacob says, I've had it. And so Jacob stands up and he says, look, I'm not going to sit here and watch you rummage through my stuff any longer. That's it. You're going to hear from me for a minute. I'm going to tell you about the things you've done to me and ask you how, how much sense it makes right now for you to be scrutinizing my character. He goes on and, and lists a whole slew of things, and I'll read through a couple of them again a second time. He says, Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household's goods? See it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required of my hands, whether stolen by day or stolen by night, thus I was. By day the heat consumed me, and, and by night, and the frost by night, And my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you changed my wages 10 times. Jacob tells him off. He gives it to him straight. And I want to ask you, how many of you in the midst of conflict say, man, if I could just get that person in a room, I would just tell them all the things that they didn't notice and that they need to know about this and how they've wronged me, then I'd be vindicated. Look at it. How does Laban respond? Is it this moment of of justice? Is it this moment where Laban says, yes, Jacob, you're right. I've been so cruel to you. I don't even know what I'm doing here trying trying to accuse you of something. Jacob, you're so right. I'll ask you how many of your conflicts end like that when you really let somebody have it. Is that generally how it works? No, because in fact, when we try to come to the scene and vindicate ourselves and demand repentance from our oppressors, it is very often the last thing we receive. In fact, sometimes it makes them harder and more desiresome to not listen. And what does Laban say? He responds like this. Then Laban replied to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. (laughs) Really? They married Jacob. They became one flesh with Jacob. And the children are my children. Okay, now that's really confusing. How do you get to claim the children as grandparents? All right? I mean, maybe you can claim they're my daughters. We gave birth to them. But the grandchildren? Really? So the children are my children. And the flocks, they're my flocks. You made a deal. Said this guy could have them if they were speckled. They're speckled. How are they yours? This is not the response we're looking for. This is not what we expect to happen. We just lay the facts out before people. And you know what? This points us to something. Our human conflicts are so much more convoluted than any of our reason and explanation can make sense of. 
They really are often that way. If you have it in your mind that if you could just have your say and speak your peace, that everything would be better, I am going to tell you right now, you are putting your trust and your hope in a broken, broken tool. If you think that all that needs to happen is you need to shed the light, on the proper light on the situation and let everybody know what's going on, and that's what's going to resolve your conflicts, you are going to be deeply disappointed. Deeply. In fact, you look at this conflict, and one of the crux pieces of it is really due to neither Jacob nor Laban. What is the biggest point of conflict at this point? The stolen gods. Well, who stole them? Was it Jacob? Did Laban misplace them? Fact is, the two guys who are in a dispute are not responsible for the crux thing that is causing this conflict. This is how often, this is often how our conflicts work. There are factors that neither of these two men are privy to, and that is what is at root rendering this problem so vicious and so confused. And neither one of them, if they search their hearts all day long for what they did wrong, could figure out how to resolve it, because they just don't know that Rachel took the gods. This is, this is where we need to be prepared to rely on the good news, the gospel, that God resolves conflict, and we don't, because we are not omniscient. We don't know all the facts. No matter how well we think we know the facts, we don't. And so what we have here, and, and, and even consider your own conflict. Say, say you have a dispute with your friend Todd. And you talk to your friend Pete, and you say, Pete, I'm having a tough time with Todd. In fact, you're very discreet. You don't mention anything specifically bad about Todd. You don't, mention, you don't speak ill of him. You just say, we're having a tough conflict. And then let's say Pete goes on to tell everybody else that Todd's a jerk. Did you tell Pete to say that? No. Did you even give Pete reason to believe at the end of the day that Todd was a jerk? No. But when word gets back to Todd that everyone now thinks he's a jerk, guess who's the obviously guilty party? You. And you didn't try to create that. You didn't try to cause that, but something you did, did in fact cause that. And now you have a conflict that is outside of your hands, bigger than what you can explain, and this thing is going to mushroom and snowball. Have you been there? Has this sort of a thing happened? Inadvertent factors, inadvertent actions are going to affect our human conflicts. And this is the sort of thing that, that should make us very clear that we are dealing with something so much bigger than the one person we are in conflict with. We're dealing with this thing called sin, and it doesn't make sense. Sin does not make sense. Its effects don't make sense. What it does to you and to your adversaries does not make sense. And if you think you can figure it out, let the first lesson to be learned today be a lesson about your own limitations. All of that being said, the failure of Laban to reciprocate Jacob and to acknowledge his guilt before Jacob. All of that being said, how does this chapter end? It does end with Jacob being delivered from this conflict. Not the way he wanted to be delivered, with his, his adversary admitting his guilt. The way it ends is almost comical. And this, this is amazing. What happens is Laban, who came out probably to go and kill Jacob for what he had done, he says, I've got an idea. How about you and I, we sign a mutual restraining order where you can't come by near me and I can't come near you. 
because I'm afraid of you. Can you imagine you'd all go, huh? Yeah, you just show me where to sign. Um, good idea. Why didn't I think of that? You should be away from me and I should be away from you. <laughs> wow, that is such a good idea. You might think that my fleeing was kind of my trying to do something like that, but we'll set that in the back, on the back burner for now. What a great idea that you've come across here. And in the midst of your conflicts, you will find that sometimes you are going to have to, if you really want it to be over, you are going to have to kind of embrace a solution that is being proposed by the other guy. You can hardly believe is coming out of his mouth. And frankly, you would like a little bit more vindication and for him to acknowledge it was your idea the whole time. But you go, yeah, okay, okay. That's what we're going to have to do. That's what we're going to have to do. And what they do is they erect a pillar and they erect a, a mound of stones and they make a covenant. Covenant is agreement. A solemn agreement between these two men. And... This pillar is erected, and this heap of stones are erected for two reasons. As reminders and boundary markers of where the line where these two men are not going to cross into the other's territory. To keep them separated. In the case of Jacob, this pillar, though, is indicative of something more. We already saw one pillar get erected. I wonder if anyone can remember where. It's when Jacob has a dream about this ladder to heaven. He erects a pillar afterward. Pillars in the Bible are always images and symbols of God's intervention. They go up into the air, right? God is in heaven and we are on earth. And they're indicative of God's work. Memorials of God's work right then and there. So pillars will be used that way all throughout the Bible. And Jacob commemorates this moment calling on the name of his God, the fear of Abraham and Isaac, recognizing this conflict was not resolved because of my labors. It was resolved because of the God who intervenes. It wasn't even really resolved. I was just saved from it. A resolved conflict would be someone acknowledging guilt and thus having good, healthy relationship again. When Laban takes off, it says he kisses his, his daughters and kids. doesn't have anything for Jacob, and he's out of there. And that's the end of the story. I think for us, if we're honest, there's something incredibly dissatisfying about all of this. Something incredibly dissatisfying that this conflict and hostility still seems to sit. At the very most, it's been restrained. Some of you right now, you have conflicts that at the most have been restrained. There are still deep-rooted issues between you and another person. Maybe you have been wronged in ways that are unspeakable. And they acknowledge no guilt whatsoever. They're not threatening you anymore, so you're delivered from them. But, but, it's not as though there is now peace and harmony and shalom between you and that other person. This points us to two very important truths about the gospel and how the gospel reorients our hopes in the midst of conflict. First of all, it points us to the fact that the gospel is not, the good news is not, That each one of us, in all of our disputes and conflicts with our brothers and sisters, when we believe in Christ, we are guaranteed that we will be vindicated in all of those. That they will repent to us, that they will apologize to us, and there will just be universal happiness between us and them. In fact, we know that some people who have harmed and oppressed us will absolutely never apologize. Not even in eternity. 
Not even in eternity. There will be people who wronged you who are not with the Lord in heaven and so have their heart changed and they do not ever tell you that they are sorry. But you know what the good news is? The good news is that we have had our focus completely reoriented. And we know that our problem is not really issues that we have with other people. The problem that is preventing us from having wholeness and happiness is not a problem or an issue that we have with someone who has wronged us. Things are completely reoriented. The problem is that we are in fact in conflict with God. And these conflicts that we have with other people, they are just a side effect. They are just a side effect of the conflict that we have with God. And this conflict we have with God is not over goods or property, over our pride. This conflict is cosmic. This dispute encompasses everything. And in this dispute, we are in the wrong and we stand to lose everything, our very life and our very soul. And when we have been broken and smitten by the gospel, we have this insight that everything, the ultimate thing, the biggest thing, the biggest conflict that that enslaved us and inhibited us from having peace and joy and happiness, that biggest conflict has been completely resolved. It's gone. Completely resolved. We are reconciled to God. And what that does is it takes these human conflicts that we have and it puts them in their proper light. They are at the most temporary conflicts. Conflicts that cannot imperil us because they do not ultimately define us. The conflict that does define us, our broken relationship with God, that is solved. And it would be as foolish to worry and to be, to be uh, inhibited from growth and moving on because of our interpersonal conflicts, as it would be foolish for a person who has just been saved and given life, saved from death, to be concerned about the fact he has a cold. It's just a cold. You've been given life. You've been saved. These conflicts, yeah, they're difficult things, but they are not imperiling, and the gospel points us to that. Jacob, he is on a mission to go to the promised land. Did that mission get compromised by this conflict? Did that mission get overturned? He's still going to the promised land. With a confused sort of mutual restraint between the two of them that is still begrudging. But he is still going to the promised land and leaving that behind. Leaving it behind. Allow the gospel to reorient your expectations in human conflicts. You know, because of sin, they're not always going to work out in your favor, but it doesn't ultimately, doesn't ultimately matter because we've been reconciled to God. Second point I want to, to impress upon you is also the glorious news of the gospel in its relationship to our labors for the kingdom of God. Jacob tried to make sure that God's plan of him going to the promised land would come to pass. And he tried hard in two different ways to get himself to the promised land. 
The only ways that he knew how. First thing he did was what? He said, I'm going to have to be sly, sneak out of here, get a running start, and hope this guy allows me to leave him in the dust. Does that plan work? It doesn't work. What does Laban do? He chases him to come after him. Despite his best efforts and labors to pursue the kingdom of God, it was not enough. Laban overtook him. And then Jacob tries again to labor for the kingdom. He comes to, to, to excuse me, Jacob tries again. He comes to Laban and he says, I'm going to solve this problem through reason, perhaps. We got a dispute. The way I'll make sure I get to the promised land and get rid of this oppressor, I'll try to argue him. I'll let him know all the facts that he's been missing for years about how bad he is and how much he's oppressed me, and I'll convince him. Does it work? No, it just doesn't work. See, but nevertheless, he gets delivered. The glorious thing about the gospel is, yeah, we labor in faith for the kingdom. And we realize sometimes we'll get to see the fruits of those labors. We'll get to see things grow. And guess what? Sometimes we will be given deliverance, salvation, and blessing completely in spite of our labors. In spite of our best efforts. God will bring about his end in a way that surprises us. Jacob thought he would bring about, God would bring about his ends if he had this kind of head-on collision in a debate. It's not how it happened. God provides deliverance through his own means. And what a better thing for us to rest in as we go into a big election week. I think a lot of us think as we labor for the kingdom, we need to preach the ideals of the kingdom to, to people who would disagree with us. And even when we go to the ballot box, we want to vote the ideals of the kingdom. And sometimes we have this idea that the greatest thing in the world would be if that other political party that we just had this gridlock clash with, only they would just admit they're completely wrong, capitulate to, to, to my worldview, and we would be set. All conflict would be over. And that, what a limited perspective. Believing in the gospel in the midst of our conflict is believing that God is going to somehow bring about deliverance, and a sort of peace wholly in spite of our best efforts to create peace on our own. Wholly in spite of our attempts to get people to agree with us, God might get people to agree with us and to work for the deliverance of his people wholly apart from their agree, agreement with us. Got to make sure whenever we're arguing for something, laboring for something, doing something, we're not ultimately laboring to vindicate ourselves, but we're pleased with any outcome which advances God's kingdom. Last thing I'll just say is, you know, in this sort of thought right here, trusting on the gospel in the midst of our efforts, and especially even in this season, how many of you guys have seen the movie Amazing Grace? It's like 2006, yeah, several people. It's about William Wilberforce. Think about this classic story. Wilberforce saw, he saw a slave, several slaves on a slave ship being completely treated as, treated as if they were animals. Wilberforce saw this, it cut him to his heart, and he said, for the rest of my life, I am going to labor to abolish this practice of slavery. That's what he said. He's a hard worker. He's not unlike a Jacob who works 20 years for the kingdom. If you know that story, you know that despite all of his efforts, all of his oratory skills before the parliament, the British parliament, and he was an impressive speaker evidently, he never in his lifetime persuaded the opposing party that abolition should transpire, that they should quit the slave trade. 
fact, when he got to the end of his life, he was so depressed that his life work seemed to be in vain. He was chronically ill, constantly in pain. If you know the story, what he ends up doing is meeting another guy in the parliament who says, we can, we can beat this in a different way than what you've expected, William. See, you always wanted the other guys to just give in to your points, give in to your arguments and say, all right, William, you're right. Never happened. He says, what you need to do is anticipate that perhaps deliverance can come about through means other than your ideals being vindicated. What ends up happening is they pass a law that any ship that is facilitating any sort of trade of goods to the countries that that Britain was at war with would have to be stopped by the British Navy and arrested. And effectively, all of the ships that were involved in the slave trade were connected to France in some form or fashion or another, and all of those ships could no longer act to, to trade these slaves. God saw the faithfulness of William Wilberforce and he, he actually vindicated his ends, but not by vindicating William Wilberforce. Not by everybody admitting William Wilberforce was right. He brought about the ends that he always wanted, deliverance and redemption for these slaves, but not by William getting to get propped up at the end of the day. Look at this grand fellow with his fine efforts. That's your peace and conflict, you guys. That deliverance is going to come. And it may come in ways you never expected, despite your efforts and your labors to find vindication. Take peace in that. Your conflicts, they're for God's glory. That's a good thing. It takes a little bit of pressure off of you, and it gives us reason to sing praises and reasons to honor and glorify God in the midst of all of this. And that we will turn to do. If you'll bow your heads with me, I'll I'll pray for you. Holy God, we thank you so much for your inspired word. Lord, you give us so much insight into who we are and the depths of our problem. And thankfully, you don't stop there just showing us the problem. You call us ever and again back to the solution, back to the provision of your grace, Back to the good news that my salvation and our salvation is not about us being bested or besting our our foes. But Lord, the good news is that we have been conquered by you and reconciled to you. And that as we labor for the kingdom, it is not ultimately our work which is going to save, but it is your gracious response to our faith and belief and trust. We thank you for this. We magnify you for this. And we praise you for this. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.